You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hi, I'm Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me today. This coming Thursday is Jerusalem Day, where we celebrate the victory of the Six-Day War back in 1967. This is a war that is without parallel in the history of human warfare. The speed of the war, the results of the war, the supernatural features that occurred during that war, there's no parallel to it. I mean, prior to 1967, who heard of a full-scale war that's measured in days? But that's what happened in the Six-Day War. It began on 7.45 on a Monday morning, and it was over by early Saturday evening on the same week. I mean, if you study the history of warfare, you got 100-year wars, 80-year wars, 30-year wars. Wars are measured in years and months. Where in human history has anyone heard of a major war involving six different countries, beginning and ending in less than a week. So this war is of biblical proportions. I mean, we're talking about open miracles with the hand of God directing the events. According to many experts, this was the greatest aerial victory in the history of modern warfare. Even the secular leaders of Israel, when it was all over, were bringing verses from the Bible. They were quoting verses from the Exodus, it's the finger of God. And it really was. I mean, if you compare it to the miracle of Hanukkah, that took over 20 years to finish. And here we have a war in which one tiny country, Israel, is going to face five countries, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, with assistance from Iraq and Lebanon, with a combined military might of twice the number of soldiers, three times the number of tanks, four times more aircrafts. Who thought they had a shot? We're talking about a war that even in the event of victory, most experts were speculating an expected Israeli death toll of as many as 100,000. And yet, there were less than 800 Israeli casualties. We're talking 22 years after the Holocaust, and a lot of people were thinking, here comes another Holocaust. Yeah, Jews all over the world were crying. They're saying, here comes another Holocaust, because the threat was so real. I mean, the threat was so real that Israeli leaders, they set aside all their personal and political differences to create the first national unity government. So we were unified internally. But the rest of the world, they weren't for us. The United States and other Western countries, they were neutral. And the U.S., knowing that Israel was in a perilous predicament, they warned us, don't fire the first shot. And before the war, when there were all these diplomatic efforts, Israel is trying to convince Jordan, stay out of the war, but to no avail. Before the war was underway and the Arabs were surrounding Israel, you had the Egyptian president Nasser on the radio declaring the following, our aim is to gain control over Israel and we have a plan to liberate Palestine. Ha, you Zionists, a hundred million fighters will destroy you. Be prepared because a hundred million Arabs will dig your graves for you. That's what was broadcasted from Radio Cairo before the war. And Jews all over the world gathered in prayer and fearing the worst, Israel was checking out public parks to prepare funeral grounds for the expected burial of tens of thousands of soldiers and civilians. There wasn't going to be enough room in the cemeteries to bury all the dead that was expected. But yet, less than six full days later, Israel not only survived, but had almost tripled in size. And we returned to Jerusalem and the Kotel and the Temple Mount. All that returned to us with the victory of the Six-Day War. So think about it. From the fear of being wiped off the face of the earth in another Holocaust to almost tripling the size of the country and going from international isolation to admiration throughout the world, all that occurred in this Six-Day War victory in 1967. And since in the entire 4,000 years of Jewish history, there was never a war in which the hand of God was so evident and obvious as this one, 
it's very important and it's an obligation upon us to tell the wonders and miracles that we witnessed in this war because it's a Kiddush Hashem. We want to sanctify the name of Hashem. We want people to know it, to remember it. How can we be grateful for it if we don't know what happened? I mean, we know we won in six days, but what about the details? How did it happen? What were the miracles? So I want to read a little bit from an important book by Dr. Chagi Ben-Artzi. He's a tremendous historian, a lecturer, an educator, lives in Beit El. And he wrote a book called The Six-Day War Scroll, Megillat Sheshet Ayamim, which has six sections to it. And each section corresponds to one of the days of the Six-Day War, describing what happened each day. And I want to read a little bit from this book, because as we said, if you don't know the details, then you don't know how to thank Hashem. You don't know what he did. So I'm going to read now a little bit from Dr. Chagi Benarzi's booklet about the Six-Day War. And at this point in the book, we're at the very beginning. The war hasn't started yet. It's June 5th, 1967. At 7.15 on Monday morning, almost all of the planes in the Israeli Air Force, 200 planes, they set off to attack the Egyptian Air Force, its planes and airfields. Only 12 fighter planes stayed in Israel to protect local skies. This operation Operation Moked, which launched the war, carried monumental risks. Egypt had a well-developed, advanced anti-aircraft system, boasting dozens of missiles and hundreds of cannons, generously supplied by Russia and its satellite states. In complete contrast, most of the Israeli planes were old French models, hardly fitting for the operation at hand. If they had been detected on their way before the attack, they could have easily been felled, and Israel would have remained with a totally ineffective air force. A strong air force is the key to victory in war. But it was precisely then when the great miracle occurred. All the planes reached the Egyptian airfields in Sinai, along the Suez Canal and the Nile, without even one being detected. The entire Egyptian anti-aircraft system did not function at all. Divine Providence linked arms with the brave Israeli pilots. They flew in total silence at a very low altitude, about 20 meters above sea level, with precision and operational discipline. At exactly 7.45, the Israeli planes hovered over the Egyptian airfields and bombed the runways, effectively putting the enemy's planes out of action. Among other things, they used special anti-runway penetration bombs developed by Israel military industries. And then the Israeli bombers attacked the planes on the ground, almost none of which managed to even take off. And within one hour, more than 200 Egyptian planes had been destroyed, which is almost half of the enemy air force. Throughout this first wave of attacks, Israel lost only eight planes. Five pilots were killed and one was rescued. No one in the government, the Air Force or the IDF, had believed the results of this first attack would be so successful with so few casualties. And then a couple hours later, a second wave of Israeli planes set off to strike the rest of the enemy planes and airfields. And here came the second miracle, no less astonishing than the first. Despite lacking the element of surprise this time, and with Egyptian aircraft systems working at its fullest power, the Arabs still couldn't put up a fight. They only hit one plane. And despite heavy enemy fire, Israeli pilots managed to destroy more than 100 planes and completely neutralize all military and civilian airstrips. The pilots themselves were completely puzzled how almost all of them returned from their mission unscathed. So exactly three hours after the start of Operation Moked, that is, it started at 7.45, and by 10.45, the war had been won because approximately 300 Egyptian planes had been wiped out and all airfields disabled. And the book goes on to explain all the miracles that took place. It's historically accurate. And again, it's important to know because if you say Hallel, you want to thank Hashem, 
You want to know what happened. Just like on Passover night, we read the Haggadah. We want to know what happened in the Exodus. We want to know the miracles, get familiar with them. We should get familiar with the miracles of the Six-Day War. And that will do two things for us. We'll thank Hashem. We'll be more grateful because we know what happened. And most importantly, it'll build our emunah and bitachon. Because we'll say, hey, if he did it then, he can do it again. Why are we afraid? Why are we afraid of the world? Look what Hashem did for us back in 1967. Why do we tremble before the world when it comes to bombing Gaza or anything else we do? The world wanted us to bleed in that 1967 Six-Day War. And Hashem brought that miracle because we said, the heck with you, world. We're going to make a preemptive strike. We don't care what you think. If you do that, then Hashem gives you the siyata deshmaya, the heavenly assistance. And when you're afraid to strike first because you fear what the world will say, then you get hit hard. And that's what happened in the Yom Kippur War. But that's another story. And you know, the Six-Day War victory, it really was a source of Jewish pride. I mean, Jews from all over after that, even the kibbutzniks, the leftists, everybody ran to the Kotel, which had been liberated. And everybody felt something. It's like the Messiah was knocking on the door. I was only nine years old when it happened, but we were a secular family. And my father, he wanted to buy a house in Israel. And he also made a trip to Israel. Jews all over the world knew that something miraculous had taken place. Many years later, when I was in college, I remember when Rabbi Merikahana came to our campus in America, you know, we were all assimilated secular Jews. And the rabbi wanted to instill into us some Jewish pride and he mentioned the Six-Day War, and he said, who wins wars in six days? It took God six days to make the world. And on the seventh day, we both rested. And you know, it's kind of incredible that certain religious communities, talking about the Haredi sector, many of them don't acknowledge the miracle of the Six-Day War. It's just a regular day. They do Tachanun. Of course, they don't say Hallel, praise Hashem for the miracle. None of that. But what's funny is, back in 1991, there was what was called the Mechemet Mifrats, the Gulf War, when Iraq, led by Saddam Hussein, was launching missiles into Israel like the Arabs in Gaza do today. But at that time, 1991, it was the first time that something like this had happened. And in January of 1991, sirens were going off, missiles were falling inside Israel, and the Jews were scurrying into their homes, putting on gas masks, putting tape under the door so the gas doesn't leak. In the end, there was no gas and 42 Scud missiles exploded inside Israel. And all this happened after Iraq and Saddam Hussein, they invaded Kuwait, and then they started to attack Israel. And there was a real feeling at the time that Israel was under tremendous threat of destruction with non-conventional weapons. We were getting courses and had to put on our masks. As a matter of fact, more people were killed trying to put on their masks or from panic than from the missiles. Anyway, I bring this up because at that time, the Haredi community was talking about the miracle of that 1991 Gulf War, that so few people were hurt, that with 42 missiles inside Israel, it was a miracle that so few people were hurt. What a miracle. And they're right. It was a miracle. And I'm sure people talk today about the miracle in this latest attack from Gaza where one Jew from Rehovot was killed and 27 injured. It's a miracle. But why would they call that a miracle? but not the Six-Day War a miracle. I mean, the Six-Day War miracle was a lot more impressive than the Gulf War miracle. So let me explain to you their reasoning. You see, the miracles in the Gulf War, that's the familiar kind of miracle in the exile. You know, where the big bad Goy, the Paritz, the king, he issues a decree and the Jews are threatened and the Jews pray to the Almighty and at the last second we're saved. That's a typical 
Gullus miracle that you see in all your Hasidic storybooks. That's what happened in the Gulf War. The Jews hid in their rooms like cockroaches, hoping everything will pass. And when it was over, hardly anybody was hurt. The 1967 Six-Day War? That's a miracle of a different kind. That's where not only are we saved, but we forge ahead. We take offense. We defeat the enemy and take back the biblical lands that belong to us. It's a miracle of redemption, not a miracle of exile. The Gulf War miracle, even though it took place in Israel, it's still an exilic kind of miracle where the most you can get out of it is you don't die, this time anyway. But the Six-Day War, a miracle of redemption, of Kiddush Hashem, of Jewish power and the sanctification of God's name. And unfortunately, many Jews, so stuck in an exilic mentality after a 2,000-year-old exile, they can't recognize this new kind of miracle where the Jews triumph over their enemies. They can't say Hallel to that. They're not used to it. They're used to the kind of miracles in the Hasidic storybooks where the villain is foiled because some great tzaddik stepped in and was able to prevent the Jews from getting wiped out. They don't know what to do with the miracle when we wipe out the other guy. A Jew who doesn't see the miracle of the 1967 Six-Day War or doesn't see something special in the establishment of the state of Israel after 2,000 years where we see the ingathering of the exiles, we see the fulfilling of the verse in Zechariah chapter 8, there shall yet be old men and women in the squares of Jerusalem. And when we see the flowering of the land, somebody who doesn't realize that there's something happening here has to be an ostrich. His head is in the ground and he's oblivious. It's like that Bob Dylan song where he says, something is happening, but you don't know what it is. And speaking of ostriches, I wanted to talk about this past week's Parsha, where we finished the book of Leviticus. The last two Parshas were Bahar and Bechukotai. And if you look at that last Parsha in Leviticus, Bechukotai, you have the heavy curses coming in. It's the Parsha of the Tochacha, very similar to Parsha Kitavo, where we get these rapid fire curses on what will happen to us if we don't go in the ways of Hashem. And when reading the Torah portion, when we read those curses, there's a custom, and it's a custom that all the communities have, the Yemenites, Ashkenazi Jews, Sephardi Jews, that when you get to the curses, the guy who's reading the Torah, he'll read it in a low voice and he'll say it really fast. He'll kind of mumble it so you could barely understand it. And the idea behind this custom is that we don't want the curses to befall us, God forbid, so we say them real fast. But Rabbi Benjamin Kahan used to say, that behind this custom, there might be another reason we do it. And it's something troubling. We say it fast and low because we don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about bad things that can happen to us. We kind of want to look away so the problem will go away. And it doesn't go away, it gets worse. We want to keep thinking that everything is peachy keen. A Jew shouldn't be an ostrich. You can't look away and think the problem's going to go away. That's what an ostrich does. He puts his head in the ground. Everything must be okay. You know, when I was in yeshiva in Machon Meir, it's a very Zionist yeshiva, and the stress was always positive, very optimistic, that everything's wonderful, we're in the redemption process, and Yetov, it's going to be great. Yetov, that was the slogan. And everybody was smiling, because after all, the Jews have come back to their land, there's a Jewish army, the Jews are settling the land, we're thriving in our state, we're fulfilling the words of the prophets, and therefore everything's peachy keen and looking up. And you even have these really nice pop songs by Jewish artists that convey this message. Tachshov tov, tov. Think good and it'll be good. And that's all fine, maybe on a personal level. But the question is, if on a national level, if that's the way we should be thinking. I remember sitting in the office of the Kach movement 
headed by Rabbi Kahana. And one time he came in and spoke to us, gave us kind of the Vat Torah. And he said something that was in contrast to all this. He said, Im tov, tov. If we do good, it will be good. But if we don't do good, it's not going to be good. That is, it's not automatic. It's going to be good. It depends on what we do. And so when you look at the Pasha Bechukotai, you really see that that's the message. Because on one hand, we have the blessings and then we have the curses. But the blessings are pretty brief. You have like 13 verses of blessings. And then after that, you have like three times more curses. Why is it so disproportional? Just a few blessings and so many curses. And so it doesn't seem that the message of the Torah is, it's going to be good. It seems to be stressing the bad, the curses that will befall us if we don't do the right thing. If you go in my statutes, then it'll be good. But if you don't go in my statutes, it's going to be bad. Isn't that the message of the Torah and the Parsha? And so maybe it would seem that in the midst of all this euphoria, that we're in the redemption process and we're back in our land, etc. Not to be a Debbie Downer over here, but that doesn't mean everything's going to be wonderful. There is such a thing called Geula Bi'ita. Bi'ita means in its time. A redemption that comes in its time, that is, it comes because it has to come at one point, but not that we deserve it. That is a redemption that comes in a very difficult and painful way. We're striving for redemption Bachishena, a swift and glorious one. But there are different scenarios for redemption. And Tachlis, the path that we're going on, it's not the glorious redemption path. Because ever since that 1967 Six-Day War, it's been downhill ever since. From the very moment we gave back the Temple Mount, when Moshe Dayan brought back the Arabs who fled, who fled from Israel, and they were brought back so they won't be a problem of refugees. And the slow process of giving back those lands that we won in the Six-Day War, of giving back the Sinai, of giving back Aza through the Oslo Accords, not to mention Gush Katif. In short, it's been a downward slide ever since that Six-Day War. Let's face it. So what do I mean, Yetov? We got to get out of this la-la land mentality because even the rabbis in the Talmud said that if the Geula, if the redemption comes in the hard, difficult way, the rabbis say, if it comes that way, let it come, but I don't want to be there. And so for us, the challenge is to take this redemption off the path of Bi'ita, the slow, painful way, and put it on a course of the swift Bachishena kind of redemption, on the swift and glorious redemption path. How do we do that? By demonstrating Emunah and Bitachon in the Almighty and taking the steps that have to be taken, settling all of the land of Israel, expelling the Arabs, annexing Judea and Samaria to the state of Israel, cleaning up the Temple Mount, making Aliyah to Eretz Israel, because those are the steps, those are the mitzvahs that demonstrate that you really believe that you have bitachon and emunah. Those are the mitzvot that will hasten the redemption because they're yardsticks of faith. Because the only reason we don't do those things is because we're afraid what the nations will say. And if we're afraid, that shows a flaw in our faith. That shows we don't mean what we say in the morning when we say, they with their horses and chariots, but we go in the name of Hashem. Yeah, we say that in our prayers, but how do you prove it's not lip service? By putting your money where your mouth is and doing those difficult things that prove that you really are not afraid of the rechev and the susim from the chariots and the horses. And if this seems like too much for you, like, what am I, a religious fanatic? How can I do all this? Even on a logical level, this is what has to be done. 
Because if we don't do it, we're just having a slow, painful death here where we get knocked off one by one. Even logic dictates that this is what we should do. You don't have to be a religious zealot to realize that the Jews have to make Aliyah. It's getting kind of dangerous over there. And it's no picnic over here in Israel either. But it would be pretty awesome if we had a country without a fifth column Arab enemy that's trying to kill us. So we should be basically doing this anyway if we were normal people. Finally, I want to talk a little bit about the whole shameful situation of what's going on in Gaza. How a gang of thugs is able to bring Israel to its knees forcing us to hide out in shelters. What an embarrassment. The same IDF that defeated armies in the Six-Day War isn't able to put down a bunch of Arab gangs and thugs. Of course they could if they wanted to, but our leaders are afraid because it's all a matter of faith. Do you believe in the God of Israel or in the nations of the world? When we ignore the warnings of the world before that Six-Day War and we carried out that preemptive strike, then we got the Siat Dishmaya. Today, we sit and we tremble. We worry, what will the world say? What will CNN broadcast if we start bombing Aza? So instead of doing what David HaMelech did, we act like ghetto Jews. What do I mean like David HaMelech? Well, if you look at Psalms 18, there, King David, he shows us how to fight a war. And this is what he says in Psalms 18. And my enemies, I cut them down. I pulverize them like dust in the face of the storm. Like mud of the streets, I poured them out. I pursued my foes and overtook them and did not return until they were totally destroyed. I struck them down and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. So that's the sweet psalmist, King David, explaining Jewish war ethics. Just to repeat some of those verses, I shall not return until I utterly destroy them. In Hebrew, lo ashuv at kalotam. Now, why does David say that? Isn't that kind of extreme? Because if you don't fight that way, if you don't utterly destroy them, then the most you can ever achieve is a ceasefire, like we just did in Gaza. You fight a war in order to win it so that your enemy won't get up. So you can see that there's nothing in this psalm where David is concerned about hurting enemy civilians. That's just a modern, made-up perversion of Torah ethics. We have to fight the wars like King David did. Lo ashuv ad kalotam. I'm not returning until they're all wiped out. That is how a normal Jew fights a war. May we merit to be led by true Jewish leaders in the mold of King David, who did not return from battle until the entire enemy was obliterated. And he couldn't care less about the BBC or the CNN. And by the way, for more on Dovid HaMelech, you can tune into my podcast. We're learning the book of Shmuel right now. And it's all about King David. So Google in Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. It's a podcast on Spotify and other forums. Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. For an authentic study of the Bible with Jewish sources, tune into that and I'll be back next week.